Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Today, with the opioid epidemic our country is experiencing in a big way, EDs oftentimes have to deal with drug seekers on almost a daily basis. And that's people that come to the ED specifically to deal with getting their habit fulfilled. Here with us today to talk just a little bit about leading a culture change on how substance use disorder can be treated right directly within the ED is Dr. Darren Nevin, a board-certified and residency-trained emergency physician practicing at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. So, doctor, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. So, let's start off by giving us a little bit of an idea of how the opioid epidemic has impacted the ED at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center, doctor? So we started out about 10 years ago, mostly dealing in our ER with patients that were drug seeking. So they had an agenda to come to the ER and maybe didn't have real physical uh, ailments, but they portrayed those physical ailments in an attempt to get pain medicines. And we've evolved since then because we've started actually a statewide database where all the ER visits are tracked and we put care plans in on folks. So if somebody has that pattern, the ER doctor's made aware of that pattern and actually has a a care plan that shows uh, their history of addiction or treatment or chronic opioid prescribing. And, And we've actually evolved to the point now where everyone that comes to the ER in the state of Washington automatically has their prescription monitoring profile run. Where we're at now is we're actually seeing people come in more with overdoses and with side effects of opioids and with the medical complications. Um, A lot of what we're seeing is abscesses and the terrible infective complications like endocarditis and spinal epidural abscesses that are very life-threatening and require a lot of hospitalization. Um, And then we're also seeing people that are hitting rock bottom that are 
begging for treatment and a way out of their addiction, which most ERs and most ER providers are not equipped to deal with. So most ERs, the way that they deal with it, uh, there's actually a, an expression for that, and it's called treat them and street them. But your community decided to change that approach entirely in terms of how you deal with those with substance use disorder. Why treat them in the ER? Um, you're exactly right. For Ever since the ER was created, it's really been uh, epicenter for alcoholics. So we've always had this long history of uh, taking care of people that come in intoxicated from alcohol. And the, the paradigm is really uh, let them sleep it off, and then when they're well enough to walk around, um, maybe give them a few brochures and, you know, say that they might have a problem. But uh, it's so pervasive that really we just get them through the acute physiologic effects of the intoxication and then send them on their way. And that's how all these other intoxication epidemics uh, have been treated. Uh, going back when we had meth, those people would come in more hyper and we would calm them down with medicines and then they would leave also. But we've never really treated and applied addiction science to these folks and uh, referred them to where they need to go uh, to actually prevent the root cause of why they keep coming to the ER. So that's what we try to do here because what we're going to do, if, unless we do that, is we're just going to be treating the symptoms. We're not going to be ever curing these folks. We're just going to be managing the symptoms. So I really came about this because I think that Suboxone is part of uh, the most successful evidence-based strategy to cure opioid addiction. And uh, there's certainly plenty of these patients in the ER, so why wouldn't we be doing this in the emergency department? So it really came out of a need to not just treat the symptoms, but to go for a cure. So today, you're prescribing both Suboxone or Vivitrol as needed to help those that are struggling with substance use disorder. Um, so let's go back to the beginning and, and talk about how, doctor, you started this program. Sure. So um, honestly, a medical student came to me and wanted to do a research project for the summer and we have been struggling with getting as many people as we can on Suboxone. Uh, we find that it's an incredibly effective therapy for heroin and opioid addiction. And uh, we came up with this idea that why don't we see if we can give Suboxone in the ER. So we um, tried to uh, get this past our pharmacy and therapeutics committee at the hospital which was a, a medium obstacle, but it was surmountable because the hospital already stocked Suboxone, uh, but they weren't necessarily using it for the treatment of addiction. Uh, we happen to be one of the largest hospitals in the state of Washington, but we don't have any board-certified addiction doctors in our hospital. And uh, the biggest obstacle, though, was where are you going to send these folks after you start them on Suboxone in the ER? So we had to find a clinic that would take these folks, and we ended up partnering with our local regional health district, which already ran a successful methadone program and had about 500 people in the program, but had them on a waiting list, and they were looking to try to start a Suboxone program. So they agreed to take our patients about three a day for two months during the summer uh, that were started on Suboxone in the ER and continue their treatment but using the OTP paradigm. So 
it's a little bit of a special case in that most patients, when they start on Suboxone, they do it because they don't have to go to a methadone center every day. Our patients actually did have to go to a methadone center to get Suboxone, but that was the only way we could find a prescriber who was willing to be so flexible and just take three patients um, every business day. So that's going to be probably the hardest thing for anyone starting this is, is going to be to find a, a clinic uh, that they can send people to because you're just starting a very long-term therapy in the ER. Um, it's not something that you're going to continue to give that patient. So a shortage of board-certified addiction specialists is something that you have experienced, and, and here in Ohio, we've got the same thing. So let's get into how you were able to overcome that challenge. Sure. I believe in Suboxone, but I believe it has been a failure that we try to waiver primary care providers to give it. Um, I want to say that w the waiver program has been out um, a little over 15 years, and we are still woefully understaffed with doctors that are getting the waiver. But mostly, doc there are actually a lot of doctors that are wavered, but they're just not prescribing it. So we looked at this problem and said, well, how can we give this drug without using wavered physicians? And there actually is a loophole. There's something called the three-day rule. And if you Google that, uh, buprenorphine three-day rule, you'll see on there that it says that a prescriber with a DEA number can actually administer Suboxone but not prescribe it once a day for three days if the patient is going to be going into a treatment program. So the intent is this will be a bridge for the patient as they're getting arrangements made to get into a treatment program. So we did our double checking on that three-day rule. and We checked with the DEA and they were fine with it. And we actually ended up uh, taking their advice and they said, don't use your own DEA number of the prescriber. You can use the hospital's DEA number when you're using this three-day rule. And um, we tested out whether we could take naive doctors to how Suboxone works and they definitely were not wavered and some of which were very critical of the methadone program and have them start prescribing Suboxone in the ER when someone came in withdrawal and we found that they were receptive to it. And when did you start this program, doctor? The program was started in July of 2016, and it was a 60-day research project, and it's continued after that, um, going a little over a year right now, to where we give it Sunday through Wednesday at our hospital from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., and we do it at that time period because the Suboxone Clinic has to be open the following day. So uh, we give it on Sunday because the Suboxone Clinic is open on Monday. Um, and we have to end it on Wednesday because the Suboxone Clinic um, is open on Thursday but not Friday. So we've been doing this for a little over a year now. And how long did it take you to get the program up and rolling from start to, uh, to, to launch? And then also, what additional challenges did you face in starting the program, Dr. Nevin? It took six months. So um, the first part was going through the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. The second part was going through the Institutional Review Board. We, we met a lot of resistance at my hospital because the research was not funded. Uh, the medical student received a little bit of a stipend, but 
this was not an NIH-funded or an industry-funded uh, research project, and the hospital wasn't really interested in doing the research project, so we decided to do the research part of it after the patient left the hospital. So technically, there was no patient enrollment done on the hospital grounds, and they were enrolled when they hit the health district. Um, so I think a program like this could be good put together in three to four months if you're not doing it as research. Uh, but it took us six months to put together, uh, basically from January to July of 2016 is how long it took to put it together. So can you share with us some success stories about the program? Yeah. So we enrolled patients last um, summer, and we tracked how long they stayed in treatment, which is a common outcome for substance use disorder. And we tracked how many patients were enrolled in a treatment program um, at 30 days and at 60 days. And we found that patients at 30 days, 71.4% of them were still enrolled at 30 days. And at 60 days, 51.4% were still enrolled. So we think that's a pretty good outcome to take people basically who um, didn't uh, – make an appointment to go to a substance use disorder clinic, uh, but just came to the ER, maybe because they heard about our program, but some of them just because they had a medical issue and then ended up 60 days later, half of them still being in a treatment program. We think that's um, really significant, and we, I really think we need to meet these patients on their own terms, which is why the conventional treatment paradigm doesn't really work because these folks live really... Um, uh, chaotic lifestyles. Um, some incidental anecdotal findings, you know, one of the first patients we enrolled was very chaotic and, uh, and a little bit um, disorganized, and uh, by the end of the program, he came back in and he brought his girlfriend, and he was very clean-kept and polite and uh, just very appropriate and, and said the program had done so much for him that now he was getting his girlfriend on it. And so we have several stories where patients were stabilized like that. What advice would you give to other healthcare providers about starting a similar program in their community? I think the biggest thing is to try to find a buprenorphine clinic that can take these patients after they're started in the ER. That's the hardest part of this. I think you need to try to get your hospital systems on board um, a lot of hospital systems and a lot of the, the medical community still doesn't treat addiction as a medical condition. And um, it's been shown, I think, that um, these types of systems are not going to be grown that successfully based on making a lot of money and the business model for them. And I, I think that um, large hospital systems have an obligation to the community to offer this. Um, but basically, I think the, the biggest obstacle is going to be finding a clinic to take the patients that are enrolled from the ER. Now, that said, we thought we would be completely overrun with patients, and we weren't. Uh, we're a very large emergency department of about 90,000 ER visits a year, and uh, we're only enrolling about two to four patients a week right now, which really still surprises me. Um, so I think there's a common conception because there's so many people that come to the ER, providers think, uh, wanting opioids that they're going to be completely overrun if they start giving out Suboxone. 
but we really haven't found that to be true. Um, but we have had a lot of really good cases where people were just on a very uh, bad downward spiral with abscesses and infections, and they were started on this medication and stabilized. Now, how about the drug seekers? What have you seen the impact on before you had a lot of drug seekers that used to come to your ED? What about now? The biggest part is now you have a tool for them. So you can say, look, I think maybe there could be something else going on here. Try to get some feedback from the patient on that so you're not looking like you're making an accusation for them. And then if they do admit, yeah, you know, I probably do have a problem, well, then you can offer them an alternative. You're actually giving them another drug that will take care of their cravings. It will take care of their withdrawal, but does not provide a lot of euphoria, and basically replaces an addiction with a dependence. So an addiction is when you do something despite its very bad effects on you and you keep doing it, you don't have control over it, you use more than you want. But a dependence is where you, your body needs it physiologically, but you're not necessarily doing, uh, having really deleterious effects on your life. And that's really what Suboxone is. So when we have the ability to give this in the ER, we can turn what used to be a really confrontational relationship with someone uh, that we knew had a, uh, an addiction and get them to admit they had an addiction because before they would never admit it. They would hold that so dearly because that was their ticket to further doses in the ER. Once, when you work with these folks and, and you're actually the prescriber of Suboxone, you find that they open up and maybe even embellish their addiction a little more because they know that the more honest they are, the more likely they are to get uh, buprenorphine. So it, it, I find it's a great tool when you do have someone who may be suspected of drug seeking and then can admit that they have an opioid problem that you can address it right there in the emergency department. And most people with opioid addictions, in my experience, and just about everybody I can remember with a heroin addiction has tried Suboxone because it's available illicitly on the streets. Now let's pivot for a moment. We've spent most of our time talking about your Suboxone program, but you also utilize Vivitrol in your program. Let's talk a little bit about that. I do. It's, it can be very confusing because the two drugs are actually opposites of each other, but Vivitrol is basically Narcan or Naloxone, which every emergency prescriber knows about and EMS person knows about. It's a medicine that uh, really quickly reverses an opioid overdose uh, in a very dramatic way. And there's a long-acting form of Naloxone called Naltrexone, and it's a pill, and it's been available for several years. And now there is a 28-day injection of naltrexone, which is available for folks that have been off all opioids for seven days. And it's really part of a longer-term, more comprehensive uh, solution in my mind, but it's very difficult uh, to find appropriate patients for it because the hardest part um, about having an opioid addiction in my mind is getting off the opioids for seven days. There's incredible amount of withdrawal, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, um, sweating. It's just an incredibly uncomfortable um, thing to go through, and, and most people will not go through that um, unless they're in jail. So 
Um, it's very small, I would say, you know, around 10% of opioid uh, use disorder patients are probably going to want to use Vivitrol. But when they do use Vivitrol, it's more of an abstinence-based solution, solution because once they have that 28-day shot, it's not possible for them to overdose on opioids or to get high on opioids. Um, that's why we found the most use for this for opioids is in the jails because a lot of people get incarcerated and they go through their uh, dope sickness or withdrawals in jail and then they can get this shot before they're released and they have 28 days to try to get back on their feet. Now there's more to an addiction than just treating and blocking the effects of a drug. You still should get the psychosocial help and the counseling and the tools to deal with you know, the stressors that caused you to want to escape with an addiction. Um, but it is a really, really good head start on sobriety if you're guaranteed that you're not going to be able to get intoxicated or overdose for 28 days. So we've treated a few people in the emergency department on Vivitrol who come in and they're off opioids for seven days. But honestly, what I'm treating more people in the ER with Vivitrol for is alcoholism. Like I said before, Ever since emergency departments started, we've always had a very large amount of alcoholics that come to the ER very intoxicated. And what I've started doing in the ER is treating the, these alcoholics uh, with Vivitrol. Um, it seems counterintuitive, but part of the alcohol intoxication mechanism is activation of the same receptors as heroin activates. So if we block those receptors, what we find is that uh, patients have less heavy drinking days and less cravings. And what the patients tell me is that they just don't want to drink more than one or two beers because it doesn't really do anything for them. Now, most patients will say, oh, that's an abuse. That's that drug that makes you sick. No, that's not true. This is just a drug when it's used for alcoholism that lets you get, let, prevents you from getting severely intoxicated and, uh, most people I give it to in the ER are not really ready for treatment, but they want to do something. And it's the only treatment for alcoholism that only requires about 10 minutes of cooperation. So I'm giving it to a lot of the very, very worst alcoholics that are living on the street, that are continually intoxicated. And we've had some good results with those people after they're on it for a couple months uh, going to treatment and uh, then becoming sober. Um, so uh, I think there's a little bit of a need for it for uh, opioid use disorder in the ER, but I actually think because uh, we're so overwhelmed with really bad alcoholics, we should be giving it more for alcoholics in the emergency department. When we spoke prior to our uh, going on the air with this interview, we talked just a little bit about the methadone wait list and how your program, your Suboxone program, was able to uh, remove some of the folks because uh, from the wait list because it was just so long. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, so the methadone programs are highly regulated. It, there's a lot of federal rules around it. And in my county, it is run by a state program, um, which is uh, not a medical program. It's considered a mental health program. And it has a set amount of dollars assigned to it, which is why the program has to cap off the number of patients they see. The Suboxone program is really a medical program, and 
uh, medical programs typically under Medicaid have sort of an unlimited amount of money. So in my state, you can uh, you only get so much money per county for mental health and substance abuse, and, and when it's out over, it's over. But uh, we really don't experience where we run out of money for cancer treatment or hypertension or diabetes, and Suboxone falls into that because it's prescribed at a doctor's office. So um, we've really had a lot of luck by uh, partnering with a Suboxone Clinic, uh, that's been able to take up to three patients a day. The Suboxone Clinic we partner with was started by um, two emergency department doctors, so they understand uh, what the challenges are and the opportunity to treat these patients when they're seen in the ER is. So um, that's really, I think, been a key to our success. So, Doctor, I want to thank you for your time today and sharing so much about your program. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners, Dr. Nevin, about the opioid epidemic and really everything that you've witnessed and your program as well? I just think as a medical profession, we need to start treating addiction as a medical disorder. And there's a lot of uh, still thoughts amongst the medical profession that addiction is a moral failing and that it's hopeless to treat and now there's lots of medications that are actually proven to be much better than abstinence-based therapy for opioid use disorder that we need to be using. And we need to be using new paradigms because these patients are incredibly debilitated and they're not going to keep appointments. They're not going to get preauthorizations. They're not going to do a lot of the things that a very motivated medical patient would do, which we're used to in the medical model. So I think we need to really recalibrate how we practice uh, medicine for this uh, really national health emergency of um, opioid use disorder. And, and that includes meeting these patients wherever they're at, and they're certainly in the emergency department, and uh, the ER providers certainly have the skill set to help these patients with just a little bit of guidance. Thank you, Doctor. We've been visiting today with Dr. Darren Nevin, a board-certified and residency-trained emergency physician practicing at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. While emergency providers have been traditionally resistant to getting involved with addiction treatment, some are taking a fresh look at the approach that involves initiating medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, in the ED, and then referring patients to a MAT provider for continuing care. Dr. Nevin and his team have shared their experience in doing just that with us today. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.